I was leading a wedding a few weeks ago, and a lady came up to me and she said, I actually have never attended your church, but I listened to your podcast. And I recognized your voice while you were doing the wedding. And I thought the next thing she was going to say is, usually I skip the weeks when I hear your voice and just go on to Pastor Brian. But she's like, I was listening, and she's like, I realized as I listened to you, you're from a full gospel background. And that was her PC way of saying, you shout and yell a lot when you preach. And I was like, well, at least you don't skip those weeks. And so I'm happy with that. Uh, but some, I'm really not, um, but I have been in that environment. And one of those things that happens in that environment is call and response. Uh, call and response works out this way. And, and it's, I'll be honest with you, sometimes it can be a little bit awkward. Like I was in a camp meeting setting and I was like, we're going to go to the book of First Kings. Somebody's like, hallelujah. And I was like, you must really like First Kings. Like, you may not like it after I get done with this message, but you like it right now. And then, or I've been in those atmospheres where, like, I'm preaching and I'm like a downhill train. There are no breaks when I get going. I stop to breathe right before I pass out, but then I keep going. And they'll start yelling with you. And you're like, I'm not sure if you're angry and you're about to jump me or if you, and then all of a sudden you say, oh, forget about it. You just start shouting with them like it's, it's a good atmosphere. And I say that because I'm going to invite you to call and response. And some of you are like, wait a minute, that's not comfortable. That's, that's not my deal. I'm not that type of person. Uh, not traditional call and response. I think this message will be a call that will demand response from you. So I, I want to I place that there because we're going to come back to that thought. And the other thing I want to do is this. Uh, as the young adult pastor on Saturday nights, we have a service every Saturday. And since late July, we've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. That's not hyperbole. Like, really, line by line, verse by verse, since July. It is now November. We've been in Ecclesiastes for a long time. Uh, and so if you have a young adult and every time they come home, they're like, oh, this is vanity. I'm not making my bed. Like, I apologize. Uh, but that's, that's what we've been studying. And so the, the, what framed this series is we use this phrase, good times. And good times, maybe you don't know, but there was a show back in 1974 called Good Times. Uh, classic. Uh, like, you should, you should watch it. You should YouTube it. Uh, but the idea of good times is the Evans family who are in the projects of Chicago and they are trying to reach for status and success and trying to make their lives better. And it's the struggles and the triumphs and the trials that they go through. And as you watch this show, there's not a lot of good that happens. Like as you watch the show and there's the different characters, there's JJ. And let me just go ahead and do it so you so we know what we're talking about. Dynamite! Like, you, know, the, the, you got JJ, who is the young son who may become this rich entrepreneur, or they may have to support him until he's 45. Like, you just really don't know how this is going to play out. And, and, you know, he wants to be the ladies' man. He wants to have the stuff. And then you've got the daughter that kind of holds everything together. And then you've got Michael, the youngest son, who's like this political activist that someday may be leading people or may someday end up in jail. You just really don't know how this is going to play out. And then you've got mom, who is just the bedrock of the family. She's stable. And you've got dad. He sometimes has a job and sometimes he's got to go play pool and gamble so that way they can meet their needs. And as you watch this show, they keep reaching for this status of making life better. And it seems to not work out for them. And it's really not all that good times. When dad finally gets a job down in Florida, he dies. Like, it's, it's rough. Like, let me just say this. I didn't understand syndication when I was a kid, so I thought it was current. And so even Penny, the young Janet Jackson on the show, who I was in love with and thought I was going to marry, like, I didn't realize that she was like 37 by the time I saw that in syndication. But she was a, a kid that had been abused, and that's how she ended up on the show. There's not a lot of good that happens on this show. Even the theme songs deceiving. 
because it's got that cool stride piano feel to it. It's supposed to make you happy. But as you listen to the song, good times anytime you need a payment, good times anytime you need a friend, good times anytime you come out from under, not getting hassled, not getting hustled, keeping your head above water, making your way if you can. And then they start listing stuff. Temporary layoffs. Good times. Easy credit ripoffs. Good times. Hanging in a chow line. Good times. Ain't we lucky we got them. You might as well add root canals and waiting in line at the post office because none of these things are good. And the whole essence of the show is they're striving for goodness and it doesn't seem to happen in all the stuff that they're reaching for. It's so deceiving. And the thing about it is there tends to be this mindset, this theology that if I had everything that I needed, I would be happy. But the book of Ecclesiastes flies in the face of that. In fact, it's part of the, uh, the wisdom literature. It's part of that poetry. And if you ever read that section of the Bible, one of the things that you'll notice is there's a lot of indentations like it's poem. Because literally in scripture, when that happens, it's almost as if they couldn't express it with just prose. And so they had to bust into song. Think of a musical. I lost half the room when I started talking about good times. If you're under 35, you didn't know what I was talking about. I'm going to talk about high school musicals so that way we can all come back together. The, like if you've ever seen a musical like in high school musical, you're sitting in math class taking a test. And somebody jumps up and starts singing about the date that they're about to go on. And there's two strange reactions. Either people look at them like, oh, this is perfectly normal. People always sing during math tests. Or they jump up and they start pirouetting and singing along in perfect harmony. Like everybody knew that the song was going to happen. Musicals are creepy. But you'll be reading through Psalms and Proverbs and all and the wisdom literature. And you'll see the people bust out in song. Because they can't express what they're feeling just by mere words. And so when you read the psalmist, sometimes he's expressing the unexplainable greatness of God and how his affections have been turned to that. And there are oftentimes that he expresses that though I can't track him, I will still trust him even though this is difficult for me. That when you get into the Proverbs, all of those coffee cup verses that we often quote, that all that stuff like having a wife is a good thing. He who finds a good wife is a good thing. That comes from Proverbs. It's all these wisdom statements that are help, supposed to help you pattern your life. Then there's the Song of Solomon, which should be rated Y, as in youth, you ain't ready yet. Because that's a little bit of put on a candle, listen to some Marvin, Marvin Gaye, you know, read Song of Solomon. It's a, but not only is it affection of a king towards his bride and a bride towards her king, it's a picture and a template of the true king Christ and his love for his bride and the affection that should come back. So that leaves two books, Job and Ecclesiastes. And they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. Because Job is the story of this man who goes through great suffering for the name of God and loses everything but learns to continue to trust him. Job is the book that when you read it, you're like, I don't really feel bad for that dude. But it also makes you think, as much as he went through, if he had the stuff back, maybe he'd be okay. But Ecclesiastes flies in the face of that. Let's, let's read. I'm going to start in chapter 1. We'll get to chapter 3 eventually. Um, verse 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, there, are two, there are two speakers every time you hear Ecclesiastes. At the beginning and the end of the book, there's a frame narrator that frames and set things up. And then there's the words of a character that is either Solomon or like Solomon. And so that phrase, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, is this idea that this Solomon character is expressing his life. And so as he begins to express, we'll just jump right into it. He, he didn't ease you into this. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That'd be like walking in. The first point of my message is life is stupid. Like he didn't even ease you into this. Like, there's no, hey, I'm going to tell you some things. It's going to be difficult for you. Just like, vanity of vanities. This isn't working. 
That word vanity is the Hebrew word hybel, and it means futility or brokenness or, or frustration or meaningless. And when he says vanity of vanity, it's like when we say king of kings and lord of lords, that there's nothing more vain than this. There's nothing more futile than this. There's nothing more broken than this. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Here's the problem with that. I kind of agree with him. Romans chapter 8 uses that same word for futility, that same word for frustration and meaninglessness. Romans chapter 8 verse 20 says this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the Apostle Paul's writing, he's saying, I just need you to understand everything's broken. That when we look at this, and and I don't know that you would argue with me about this. Like, as we look at our world, we see that stuff is broken. There's a young lady that's part of my small group, and she is doing a a case study in one of her classes. And the study that she's doing is this case of a six-year-old child that shot one one of his class members. And when things like that happen, when that level of crime and injustice happen, we have to look at it and say there's something that's off center. There's something that's broken in this. Let's take it from a criminal level and let's take it to a cosmic level, because even as we watch the news and see what's happening in the northeast of our country, we look at things and we're like, people shouldn't have to suffer like this. Storms shouldn't ravage a community like this. There's something wrong here. Something's broken. Something's off. But let's even take it to a personal level because there are people in this room who've walked through horrible divorces or seen their children be sick or gone through very difficult circumstances. And every time I have to sit with a couple and they begin to tell me how they don't know that it's going to work and that they want to walk out of their marriage, I think to myself that this is broken. There's something beyond them that needs to be fixed. This is not fair. This shouldn't happen. That every time that I have to do a hospital visit of a little kid who is in a life-threatening accident or is fighting off a life-threatening disease, every time I have to sit there as the doctor begins to diagnose in detail what's going wrong in their body, that there shouldn't be anything going wrong, I think to myself, there's something wrong with this. All of this is broken. Somebody needs to reconcile this and fix this. I understand when Solomon says that this is all futile, that futility of all futility, that there's something off, misaligned and broken in all this, and somebody needs to fix it. So then Solomon goes on. He says, because I found all of this meaninglessness, I tried to figure out in my own power how to fix it. So chapter two, in verse one, he says this. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly so I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he basically just laid it out. I was going to see how much fun I could have. I'm going to party. And, like, I understand, like, parties for me is, like, good cake, hats, and streamers. But for him, parties were off the chain. Look at 1 Kings chapter 4, starting in verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and the border of Egypt. They, They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day, one party, was 30 cores of fine flour. That's like 220 liters of flour. That's a lot of bread. And 60 cores of meal. 
10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebuck, and and fattened fowl. So what he's saying to you is, the choicest meats, I had them. The greatest foods, I had them. The best wine, I had it. And I didn't even lose my wits. Like, I kept wisdom about me as I did this. But anything that was good, I experienced that, and it still came up short. Then he goes into the next phrase. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and, and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. This is typical man speak. Because you get guys around each other, they're going to compare. Like it's hunting season. And I've seen some of my friends that hunt, they're starting to say, I killed a buck. I killed a 10 point buck. And you've got that other guy that's like, Killed a wolverine with my bare hands. <laughs> Gun locked up, was bearing down on that judo chopped it in the throat, it was done. God forbid that there's a third guy because he'd be like, well, I skinned a mountain lion with my keys. Like, he's just making stuff up. And what Solomon's saying is here, whatever you accomplish, I blow that out the water. You planted a tomato bush in your front yard, I built a forest. I do national parks. I had to build pools to water my plants. Like, I can accomplish more than you'll ever believe. And even when I did that, I'm still not happy. Life was still meaningless. Then he goes on. He says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. Literally, it says in Second Chronicles that he had so much silver that he made it common, that there was as much silver as there was stone. So if you walked outside and you looked at a rock, you're like, is that a rock or is that silver? Like that common. It said that he had wives and concubines. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Let me just say this. You might be wise, Solomon, but bro, you dumb. (laughs) A thousand wives? Think about how many birthdays, anniversaries, date nights. How many times you've got to watch The Notebook and have to watch episodes of Grey's Anatomy? Like this is a a thousand mother-in-laws? You should have thought this out, bro. (laughs) So as wise as you are, you're not very smart. And with all of that in mind, he's like, look, I am better with the opposite sex than you, and I'm still not happy. And my favorite one out of all of them is like, I've got singers. So when you like a song on iTunes, you buy the song. When he likes a song on iTunes, he buys the band. So you like Baby by Justin Bieber, so you bought the MP3, he bought the Biebs. Like, he, that's what he does. Like, whatever he wants, he gets it. Whatever he seeks after, that's his. And at the end of it, this is what he says. So I became great and surpassed all those that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. And I kept, my heart, I kept from my heart no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was the reward of all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. I did it all. I sit on top of the mountain. I look down and I'm still not fulfilled. You need to know all of that about Solomon for this to resonate with you. Ecclesiastes chapter three, starting in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness in the place of righteousness. Even there was wickedness. Let's just stop there. Let Let me just touch that. He's literally saying there are institutions that are responsible for the legal institution of justice in this world. And they're not getting the job done. 
He's literally saying that as I look around at the government, as I look around at, at the legal infrastructure, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. In light of recent events with the election in our country, there are many people that feel that way. And whether, whatever side of the political spectrum that you're on, I want to tell you that both sides have their own agenda, and that agenda doesn't tend to be the justice of people. But as much as he places that indictment on the government, the next thing that he says is that there are places that are supposed to represent righteousness and there's not righteousness there either. He's literally saying there are institutions that are supposed to represent the mission, the agenda, the righteousness of God, and they're not getting the job done. Even in my brief 31 years on the earth, how many times have I seen this pastor or leader who's had a moral indiscretion or this church that's misappropriated funds or this church that's built monuments to themselves and not thought about the people in the slums around them that are looking for food and looking for comfort and looking for shelter, that there are places of righteousness that aren't getting the job done either. And then he goes on to say this. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of men that God is testing them that they may see themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so, that, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Chapter four, verse one. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought that the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So literally, Solomon is saying, it is so bad. It'd be better to not be alive. And even better than that would be never to experience the brokenness and futility that's happening on this earth. But here's the problem that I have with this. He's standing there watching oppression and he's like, this is terrible. Somebody should fix this. Let's back up. Verse one, the king of Jerusalem. He's standing there saying, who's going to fix this? You're supposed to, bro. Like, you're the one that's in charge. You're the one that has the power and the influence. Let's just be real. You don't even need a military. A thousand angry women can overthrow any nation. (laughs) And with that in mind. Why are you standing there watching, saying somebody should fix this? Who's there to comfort them? Who's there to fix it? It's within your authority to do. But there are two things that are part of his mind state that I want to pull out of the scripture to you that makes me fearful for us that we might make the same mistake. The first thing is what we started with, that the institutions weren't getting the job done that the institutions of government and that the institutions of the church weren't doing it. And I'm going to be honest with you. There is a corporate responsibility that rests on our shoulders as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that we ought to respond to injustice. But there is this psychological problem called the bystander problem. 1964, there was a woman named Kitty Gino Vise, and Kitty Gino Vise was in New York City and was stabbed three times within 30 minutes by an assailant at her New York City apartment complex. The strange thing about it is that there were 38 people watching from their windows as she got stabbed and there became this alarm. Why did 38 people watch a woman get stabbed and not help her? So two psychologists, a man by the name of Batane and a man by the name of Darby, decided they were going to begin to do some experiments to figure out the bystander problem. So what they did is they said, "Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put a student in a classroom and in the room next to them, we're going to have somebody pretend they're having an epileptic fit. 
And what they found out was 81% of the time, if there was a person sitting in the room by themselves, if they heard that happening, they would jump up and they would run in and they would go help the person. But even if there were just three other people in the room, they would think, somebody else will take care of it. Let's try another experiment. So they set up a room where smoke was coming out from under the door and they would lead the person down that path. And as that person walked by, if they were by themselves 75% of the time, they would at least call, if not try and open the room and figure out what's going on. But if they were in a group down to like 31% of the time, would they help? They would say, hey, we're in a group. I'm not going to mess with that. And they came to find out that here's the issue with the bystander problem. Two things happen in people's minds, that if I'm with others, then maybe somebody else's responsibility is to fix it. Or because nobody else is reacting to this, maybe it's not that big of a problem. So the the scary question of Kitty Genovese's life isn't why did 38 people watch her get stabbed and not help? The question is, because of 38 people, they decided not to help. That's a scary, scary place to be. When we look as bystanders and say somebody else is supposed to fix this, we've already addressed how bad the problem is. We don't argue about that. So we know that it's bad enough, but it'd be foolish of us to say, well, if the institution is not taking care of it, it's not my job to take care of it. Solomon fails because he has the ability, he has the power, he has the resources, the means to fix this. And he looks at somebody else and says, hey, somebody else going to get this. It's like having a hose in your hand while a fire is going off and saying, I wish somebody would put some water on this. The other thing that may be slightly more scary is his comments about man is nothing but a beast. That just as a beast dies, so does man die. That they all return to dust. That he doesn't know if a man's spirit goes up and if a beast's spirit goes down. It's like he's literally saying, we're no different than animals. How would we possibly be able to fix this? Here's the contention that I have with that. Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Separated the water from the sky, separated the water from the earth. Then he began to create. He began to create, spoke the fish of the sea, began to create the birds of the air, began to create the creeping things on the ground, began to speak into life the the giraffes, the cows, the rhinoceroses, the lions, the the panthers. He began to speak those things into existence. And then he said, I'm going to get to the pinnacle of my creation, but I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to stop working. And so he reaches down in the dirt and says, I'm going to form this in my own image. I'm going to build him up. And then to animate him, it's not going to take my words, it's going to take my spirit. And so he breathed life into man that he might become a living soul and he activated him with his spirit. And so what made man different than any other thing that was created is everything else was spoken. This was breathed into existence. So God created this man in his image with his spirit. And it lends me to believe that if you're created in his image with his spirit, you're created to, to, fit, to live out his mission with his power. So literally what happens is there's a phrase here called incarnational mission. Incarnation is a big fancy word for taking on human form. And God has this mission of reconciliation and he decided that I'm going to give it life in human form in my son Jesus. That's the incarnation. But the incarnation of Jesus was more than just the incarnation of God physically. It was an incarnation of mission and an incarnation of hope. So the incarnation of the mission, you get that. He was walking, he was reconciling, but it was also an incarnation of hope because Jesus did things just because he could do them. Like you look at me, you're like, no, walking on the water. He did that because he could. Turning water into wine at a wedding. He did that because he could. But more than that, miracles in the lives of people, he began to do things that proved that he was able to do it. Let Let me put it like this. Lazarus died 
and Jesus raised him from the dead. But Lazarus isn't chilling at Starbucks. Like he died again. So the whole point of raising him from the dead doesn't do much if he dies again except for it just proved that Jesus could defeat death. That's that little girl that he said Talithia Kumi and grabbed her by the hand and raised her back to life. She's not going to be on Oprah tomorrow. Because she died again. But it just proved that Jesus was able to raise her back to life and that he could defeat death. He could defeat disease. He could defeat poverty. That all those things that people were saying, God, have you forgotten about us? Have you avoided us? Have you left us on our own? The incarnation of Jesus brought hope that God still cared about his people. And though they were second class political citizens, that they were still his people. And he still had a plan and a hope for them. He was the incarnation of hope. We carry that mission. We carry that burden on our shoulders. This is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, look, we have the ministry of reconciliation. He starts out in verse 13 when he says this, if we seem like we're out of our minds, it's because of God. If we seem like we're in our right minds, it's because of you. What we're doing doesn't seem to make very good sense to enter into this mission, but understand that God is calling us to do this. And he says, this is how it happens. It's the love of Christ through us that compels us to make this happen. This this deep challenge that says that if his spirit is in you, then his ability is in you to do the mission. And so really, we've spent a lot of time and I just wanted to get you to this point. What we do in mission, what we do in reconciliation, what we do in compassion is a statement of how much we believe that he is able. That if we believe that he is able, we will take on any task, we'll take on any challenge, we'll do what he asks us to do. If we believe he's able, our little becomes much in his hands and we will be willing to do what he called us to do. But I'm going to be honest with you. It's unfair for me to stand up here and challenge you to another program, system, or anything else. I don't know that that'll work. I heard a great quote this week. There was a French philosopher that says, if you want to teach men to build ships... Don't give them a building manifest. Don't give them instructions. Don't give them tools. Don't give them training. Teach them to yearn for the vastless and endless sea. If they get so caught up in the sea, they'll build a ship. So my task this morning is to just get you caught up in how able he is. And you'll do reconciliation. Let me let me let me start with you. I stand here because of the goodness of God. Like, I I know you get that, but my autonomic functions of my body, I didn't tell my heart to beat this morning. I didn't tell my lungs to take in breath. I didn't tell my mind to function this morning. It's his goodness that has me upright on my feet. It's what Job said, that if he withdrew his spirit and his breath, that all men would perish and we would all return to dust. It's his goodness that lets me stand here. But not only that, not only did his goodness give me life, his goodness gave me rescue. That he didn't sit like Solomon and say, the tears of the oppressed, they're being oppressed by sin and disease and by destruction and by the evil one. Somebody should really fix that. He got up off his throne and incarnated himself as the person of Jesus and walked 33 years to go to the cross that I not, may, may not just live, but also be rescued. I have received the rescue. But I'm also inspired by others that understand the power of rescue. There's a man named Dave Carnes. He was a 23-year military veteran. He was part of the Marines. and He stepped out of active duty and became an accountant in Connecticut. On September 11th of 2001, he watched as that tragedy, that cataclysmic tragedy happened in all of our lives, specifically in New York City. 
There were two men who were Port Authority officials, Wilhelm and Owen, John McLaughlin, and both of them were in the South Tower in an elevator shaft as the building collapsed around them. They were trapped. Unbeknownst to Dave Carnes, he had no idea what was going on, but he just realized there's something wrong here in New York City and I have to help. He walked into his boss's office, said I'm not gonna be back for a while, went and got a haircut, put on his military fatigues and drove 120 miles an hour from Connecticut to New York City. Because of his military status and his military fatigues, they gave him access that most people wouldn't have gotten. He began to walk around and as rescue workers walked away, he grabbed another Marine and they began to work through the rubble slowly. After an hour, they heard tapping on of pipes and yelling from below them. And as they pulled stuff back, they found McLaughlin and they found Himeno and they pulled them out. Of the 20 people that were saved that day, Himeno and McLaughlin were 18 and 19. But this man sat there and says, I may not be able to do much, but I will do what I can. And I don't know that Dave Carnes is a believer. I don't know anything about the guy. I just know of his service in this story. But I would challenge you that I pray that there would be a heart of a rescuer that happens in us because I have been rescued. I don't know what I can contribute. And I may not even be able, but I know who he is. He is able. It's the thing that illuminates my heart. Last weekend, there was a little girl that was part of our church, and she was watching the news with her mom, and she saw what was going on in the northeast of our country, how it was being ravaged by storms. And she says, Mom, I don't know what I can do, but we have to do something. Little girl probably has a piggy bank full of money, may not even put a dent into what's happening over there and the needs of people. But even if she's not able, he's able. That there's a young lady that came to me that she's one of our young adults and she was she was she gets, you know, airline alerts when things when tickets begin to get cheaper. And she came to me the other day. She said, I saw that tickets to New York City are one hundred and thirty dollars. And she's like, instead of thinking vacation, she thought I thought rescue. And though I may not have a lot of money, if the prices have been brought down so I could go, I would love to travel to New York City to go and be help aid and incarnate hope to the people that need it. Though she may not have much, what I do understand is that she understands that he is able. There's a young couple in our church that were set to get a house and they came to me and they even talked to me about the house that they wanted to get. And then they knew of a neighborhood that was low income, that was depraved and that was not a safe place for kids. And they decided that they would submit their comfort. And instead of being comfortable, they would do apartment life so that that way they could reach out to those kids and change the life of those kids. They may not have much that they can do in that neighborhood, but they realize he is able. And this morning, the challenge that I place before you is that we cannot be Solomon and say it's somebody else's mission. We cannot say that we are not able. Because the truth of the matter is you may not be, but he is able. The reason that we do this It's not because any song that's going to be sung is going to transform my heart or any word that I'm going to speak is transform my heart. What we bring to the table is very little, if anything, but we realize that when we submit it to him, he is able. So this morning, I want this to bear weight on you. This is heavy. I, I, I get that. But every time that we as a church do a Thanksgiving outreach or buy Christmas gifts or do a Royal Family Kids Camp. We're proclaiming two things. His greatness, that he's able, but that his goodness, his willingness resides in his people.
And if we can convince people of the vastness of his greatness and the endlessness of his goodness, they'll run to him. That every time, maybe you don't know where you land. Let me, let me say this because I, I am our next generation pastor. That I have heard more times than I have ever wanted to hear in my life that this next generation is hopeless. That they are biblically illiterate. That they do not know the Lord. That they will not follow after him. And the diagnosis is true. But every time that somebody signs a form and says that I'm going to volunteer in a kids ministry or volunteer in a youth ministry, volunteer in a youth ministry, they're saying, I understand how bad the problem is and I'm not waiting for somebody else to fix it. I may not be good with kids. I may not be able to do puppets. I may not be able to lead youth worship. But what I can do is that I can trust him because he is able. And so this morning, I want this to bear weight on you that where is it that he's calling you to serve? Where is it that he's calling you to show compassion? Where is it that he's calling you to stop standing and and analyzing and complaining? And he's calling you to stand up and show the compassion that came from the cross of Jesus Christ and say that I'm willing to make a difference because he is able. This morning, I call to the people of God. Show his greatness by the embodied apologetic of his goodness. Show how great that he is that he would use us to reach the world around us. Here in a moment, I'm going to have you stand to your feet. And I don't know where where God's challenging you. But I know this. We will build ships if we yearn for the sea. We will be ministers of reconciliation if we're fully convinced of the vastness of his greatness and the endlessness of his goodness. In the weeks to come, there are going to be opportunities, outreaches that you can give towards, that you can be a part of. There will be opportunities for you to be incarnational hope. But in the, even farther than that, there will be mission trips, there will be Royal Family Kids Camp, there will be opportunities to volunteer. There will be opportunities to walk out of your front door and walk to your neighbor's house and serve them. And he's calling us to reconcile all that is broken, all that is futile and vanity. He's saying, I've given you my spirit, which means I've given you my power. Reconcile that. The call to the mission of God is embedded into the call to follow Christ. And as we follow him, we become part of his mission of redemption and reconciliation of all things. So I'm going to have you stand to your feet. I mentioned to you at the start of this message the idea of call and response. For the last, I was going to say a few minutes, it has been a few minutes, it's been a while. I've been making the call. Now it's on you to respond. I don't know that the response necessarily happens here. I think the response begins when you drop your kids off at school tomorrow or when you get coffee at Starbucks or when you sit in your office. 
I think the response students begins when you are sitting in the lunchroom or when you're hanging out with your friends or when you are in that position where you have the right to respect or disrespect that teacher. I think it be, the response to this call doesn't necessarily start here. It starts out there. And so this morning, I, I, the challenge is simple. I just want you to be caught up in the idea that he is able and let that drive you to be part of the mission of God again. So I'm going to pray. And after I pray, you're released. You may want to stay and reflect. We have a few minutes before we have to transition services or maybe you need to leave, but the response may not be in a conversation at all. The response is going to be to I believe he's able. Will that drive me to do things that I thought others should do or that I was unable to do? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, I pray that you place the same spirit that you placed in at Dave Carnes, that you placed in the young lady from our children's ministry or, or our, that couple that gave up the comfort of a home to live in an apartment to minister to others or the young lady who's trying to find funds to go to New York City so that way she could be part of the rescue. Lord, I pray that you would place the heart of rescuers within us. Lord, I pray that you would embed in us the deep yearning for the, un, for the unmatchable ability of your power to change lives. And out of that, we will build our lives to reconcile. Lord, I pray that unlike a Solomon that we watch and we look and we have a bystander problem that, Lord, we would be, feel like we are called to jump into the fray. Lord, Call us again to compassion. Call us again to serve the world around us. Lord, I understand that this holiday season, we may begin to do things for people that truthfully, because of what the decisions they made, the addictions that they have, the, the way that they've spent their finances, the reason that they don't have a holiday season is because they have set themselves up for failure. But Lord, can I say that if we're reminded of the fact that we, as the people of God, oftentimes set ourselves up for failure and rivalry to your goodness, and you still gave it to us anyways, let that be the motivation that drives us to give. Let, let us be, let that be the motivation that drives us to serve. Let that be the motivation that drives us to reconcile, that they may understand that there is a hope for them that's stronger than any drug or any drink or any, or any addiction that they may have in their life. Lord, display your greatness by the embodied goodness of your people this morning. Lord, your calling, allow us to respond. It's in your matchless name that I pray.